Hi, this is Mary Kay's Positivity Podcast. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher and life coach. I'm also author of several self-help books. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Today, I have Adrian with us, and Adrian is host of the Profound Awesomeness Podcast, and he's also a financial services and management veteran. After surviving a heart attack in 2016, He's going to share his inspirational story on what it means to survive trauma. He now lives a life with intent and purpose. So thanks for joining us today, Adrian. It's great to be here, Mary Kay. Thank you for this opportunity to be on the on your Positivity Podcast. You're welcome. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks. <clears throat> well, tell me about the day you had a heart attack. What happened? Walk us through it. Absolutely. It's Saturday, October 8th, 2016. And where I live in Northern California, it is the birthplace of mountain biking. And the topography here is full of hills with lots of trails, fire trails and single track trails to ride. So it's really a beautiful place to go mountain bike riding. I go out with three friends for a ride early on that Saturday morning. And we're riding up an ascent towards a local reservoir. Mm-hmm. Going up the ascent, I lost all the strength in my legs in a snap of a finger. And I had to stop as my friends kept riding forward and onward and upward. I had to stop and gather myself. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is happening to me? Like, how I've ridden this trail tons of times, and now I can barely pedal one stroke after the other. And so I stood there, I guzzled a bunch of water, and I thought, what is wrong? And I concluded that I was dehydrated. You see, the night before, I took my daughter out for a father-daughter sushi dinner date. Mm -hmm. And I concluded that I had far too much soy sauce and sake and not enough water. (laughs) And (laughs) Did you tell your friend you were with that you didn't feel well? No, they kept going. I just stopped and, and tried to just pull myself together quite candidly. And shortly thereafter, I got back on my bike. I'm like, okay, pull yourself together. You can do this. You've done this a ton of times. Mm -hmm. And used all the strength and willpower that I had to just muscle my way up this hill. And my friends were waiting for me at a trail juncture. They were all chatting and enjoying themselves. And I crested there where they were waiting for me. And it's all I could do, Mary Kay, to get off my bike. I clicked out of my pedals and stumbled off my bike. And the world started to spin in the most terrifying and unsettling way. Oh, wow. Where I like to say I felt like I was in a merry-go-round on a roller coaster. It was that disorienting to me. I stumbled over to a bush and bent at the waist and proceeded to vomit all the contents out of my stomach. Wow. Just well, thank you God you were with people. Yes, thank goodness. My narrative as this is happening is okay, not only are you dehydrated from sushi, you drew the short straw with your sashimi. You got sashimi with a side of bacteria last night. Oh, God. Dinner. That's my narrative. And my other narrative that then kicked in was you know what? You're a fat old man, you're <laughs> out of shape, and this is all on you. You need to not eat as many burritos and push and- yourself, probably. Right, exactly. And so this is going through my brain and as I'm throwing up and finally that stopped and I sat down on the ground and looked at my friends. I said, I think I feel better. 
And I tried to get them to continue the ride. And to a man, they all said, no, something's wrong. Thank goodness. Oh, said wow. That. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know what was going on, but they had the wherewithal that something was really off. Because this is a riding group that I ride with frequently. We've done this ride a bunch of times before together, so this was really out of character. Well, thank God for them not being selfish and wanting to get the ride and saw that it was a real problem. Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the things that I felt guilty about, to your point, was that I had arranged this ride. And so everybody with busy schedules, raising kids, being husbands and fathers and all this sort of stuff, it was hard to get a couple hours on your Saturday morning to go do something. Mm-hmm. So I felt guilty that I was cutting into their ride, into their exercise. But what we did agree to is we did agree to go down, not the way we came up, but an extended downhill ride. But we would point our bikes downhill and, and get me back to safety. Mm-hmm. And as we're going downhill, we get on a fire trail. Then I started to get this incredible pain in my chest right smack in the center, dead center of my chest. And I'm moving myself around on my bike as I'm riding. I'm moving my shoulders around, my chest around. Like, what is this? And again, in my mind, I'm like, this has got to be food poisoning or acid reflux associated with bad sushi. And so I got off my bike yet again, and I lay spread eagled across the trail in the dusty, dusty trail and proceeded to pound my chest with my fist, a little bit like King Kong, trying to force and evacuate this pain out of my chest cavity. Oh, no. And it wouldn't go away. I got back on my bike where my friends had ridden on ahead and they were waiting for me at the next trail juncture and I caught up to them. And at this point, I'm so weak, I cannot control or ride my bike. I've had it. My chest hurts. I'm wheezing. to. I'm laboring to breathe. I'm sick. I'm throwing up here and there. My chest hurts. My legs are completely devoid of any strength whatsoever. I can barely stand up and walk. And one of my friends said, I'm going to go down to my house. He lives nearby. I'm going to get my car and meet you at the trailhead. Just get Adrian down the trail. And so he took off in a cloud of dust. And my other two friends walked my bike. I couldn't even walk my bike down the hill. And that walk, I was using a Strava, the exercise recording app Mm -hmm. at the time. That walk from that meeting point down to where I met my friend with the car was 40 minutes. I can't even believe you didn't call the ambulance right away. None of us knew what was really happening. Oh. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm having a heart attack or, oh, Adrian's having a heart attack. I thought it was food poisoning. So we're walking down the trail. My friend who got the car meets me at the bottom of the trail, throws me in the car, and is like, I'm taking you to the hospital. Yeah. And to get to the hospital on this Saturday, you drive literally right by my house. As we're driving by our house, my friend who was driving seems Brad. And I said, Brad, take me home. My kids are home alone. Oh, I, my. You're killing me. <laughs> yeah, I need to go home. Oh, no. I will take a Pepto-Bismol, an Alka-Seltzer. I'll be fine. Hopefully he, said, he no. did not listen to you. Okay, good. He did not. He kept driving. He had his hands 10 and 2 on the wheel, and, and he was white-knuckle driving. Like he was. Oh, good like, for him. So he's using his intuition. You're not, but he's he is. using his, like something. He's like, I'm wheezing. Like, I, <gasps> like these noises that I, you know, I don't know if it comes through in the podcast, but I mean, I'm really <laughs> laboring, to, laboring to breathe. And then I said to him, I said, Brad, I don't have my driver's license. I don't have my insurance card on me. I'm saying this through labored breathing and breaths. And he's like, I don't care. I'm getting you to the ER immediately. (laughs) So luckily the hospital is about a mile and a half away from my house. 
And he pulls in the parking lot. I get out of the car. I walk to the triage desk in the emergency room. And I said, hi, my name is Adrian Jones. I'm 46 years old. My chest hurts and I'm having trouble breathing. And I will tell you, if your <laughs> listeners want to know how to get into the ER really, really quickly, <laughs> say that. Yeah. <laughs> because Well, thank God. We, yeah, because within seconds, there was a nurse standing next to me with a gurney. Uh-huh. And they wow. put me on the gurney. They wheeled me into the emergency room, into an EKG lab, where EKG machine measures the rhythms of your heart. So they put uh-huh. these electronic leads on my chest. And I'm talking to these technicians. I'm still talking about food poisoning. I, guys, <laughs> I think my, even though my chest hurts, oh, and my ring and pinky fingers uh-huh. <laughs> had gone completely and totally numb. So that I have heard that. Side. Was it on one yeah. side or the other? Both thing, both hands, both okay. sets of fingers. Yeah, went completely and totally numb. And I had not um, heard of the symptom of your legs being numb. Well, they were numb. They just were totally weak. Like just oh, okay. had no, no energy whatsoever mm-hmm. in there. Couldn't move. Um, yeah, couldn't move. So, I'm talking to these technicians that I have food poisoning. They're wanting none of it. They ripped the leads off my chest, pushed me further into the depths of the emergency room where oh, wow. nurses swung those those blue curtains around my gurney. Yeah. And they, they started to, to descend upon me like you wouldn't believe it and putting IVs in my arms. Wow. Oxygen meters, reading meters on the tips of my fingers. And then a nurse came in and put a defibrillator on my chest. Mm-hmm. And at that point things got real for me. Like, why would they be putting a defibrillator on my chest? This is real. Mm -hmm. Something's going on. And then right after that, a doctor walked into my little area there and said, Mr. Jones, I'm the cardiologist on staff today. I'm here to tell you, you're having a heart attack. Wow. And then it all made sense. The pain, the tingling in the fingers, the nausea. But it was also the first time in my life that I can think of where I was looking at mortality straight in the mirror. Like Mm -hmm. it's real, it's game on. Like those words, Mr. Jones, I'm here to tell you you're having a heart attack will resonate with me forever. Right. And your family has no idea where you went. No idea. My kids who were 12 and 14 around there at the time Mm -hmm. were at home. I had left them in the family room. They were on their phones. I used to call them my screenagers. (laughs) And my wife was in Colorado for a work event. So she was gone for the whole weekend. So yeah, so no one knew that I called, my wife's name is Liz. I called Liz on the way to the hospital and she just told me to hang up and to just focus on breathing. She did know that I was at the hospital, but didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. So then jumping back into the emergency room, I've got nurses who were working IV lines in my arms and so forth. And a nurse came up to me holding two legal documents. And she said, Mr. Jones, this one here is for open heart surgery, a waiver to do open heart surgery. This one over here is to do an operation on your chest. I need, I need you to sign these. And at this point, Mary Kay, I'm so weak. I'm laboring with every ounce of my being to breathe. She put a pen in my right hand. I could barely lift it up off the gurney. And she pressed the pages of the contract against the tip of the pen mm-hmm. and just swiped it because I couldn't sign. I'm kind of surprised weak, so. that they would ask a heart attack patient to sign something. I, I mean, know. Just do the operation. <laughs> do the Let's get to the procedure. Yeah. And, and time... 
as I've learned afterwards, time is of the absolute essence right to every second matters in a stroke or a heart attack mm-hmm. situation mm-hmm. then about two or three nurses took my gurney and the ivs and started running through the emergency room to take me to the cath lab where they do heart attack procedures mm-hmm. they're running down the hospital corridor with me and i'm laying there and i'm fading things are starting to get a little drifty in my mind but i had three very clear and distinct thoughts. The first thought I had was, I do not want my wife to Liz to fly home a widow. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm going to check out of here, if this is my time, I want a proper goodbye. My second thought was why, Oh, why did I leave the house and not tell my kids I loved them? Mm-hmm. I should have done that. And I vowed in that moment that from now on, I will tell my kids and my family that I love them when I say goodbye Mm -hmm. so that they know that that is reinforced with them. I mean, just it needs to be said. And then the third thought is this is not going to effing happen today. (laughs) This (laughs) is. I was stealing myself for what was happening and the fight that my body was in at the moment. And I vowed I'm going to walk out of this hospital of my own two feet, of my own volition, and that's exactly what I'm going to do, is what I told myself as we came charging into the cath lab, where they rolled me off the gurney, stripped me down, and put me onto the operating table. And I'm fading. It's all sort of sensory feeling at this time. I'm barely conscious, laboring to breathe like you wouldn't believe. And all I could remember was my shoulders being moved about, my neck being moved about. I'm barely conscious. And after all this pain, they say that heart attack feels like an elephant sitting on your chest. That's totally true. I like to also describe it as there were like a million needles in my chest. And every time I took a breath, those needles poked into my chest cavity. Wow. It just hurt so much to breathe. Yet all of a sudden, the pain went away, like boom, again, a snap of a finger, the pain went away. I could take this glorious, beautiful, pain-free breath of fresh air. Well, how? And I took, Why? You haven't had well, the operation yet. Well, no, they had. What they were doing is they were moving my body on the, on the gurney because they had gone in through my right wrist. They'd sent a scope up through my right wrist into my, my chest cavity, into my heart. Mm. And they did angioplasty and opened up what happened, it turns out, that I had an arterial plaque rupture in my left anterior descending artery, Mm -hmm. which is the largest artery bringing oxygenated blood into the heart. And Mm -hmm. it's also called your Widowmaker. And they call it the Widowmaker heart attack because you get the Widowmaker, it creates widows. (laughs) It's a very serious situation. So why do they think you survived a Widowmaker heart attack? I'm really lucky because my friend Brad got me to the hospital in time. Okay, let's go to a party for Brad. (laughs) Brad is absolutely, I owe Brad my life. Yeah. He is a guardian angel of mine, Mm -hmm. and I literally can't thank him enough for just having the wherewithal to get me to the hospital, not take me home. Yeah. and, And think he was doing the right thing by just getting me home and making sure I was comfortable on a couch. Had that happened, I talked to my cardiologist at the hospital after the surgery and asked him, hey, what would have happened if my friend would have taken me home as I was begging him to do? And they said, you would have died of cardiac arrest. In front of your kids. 
in front of my children with my right. wife out of town. Right. Oh. Um, so. I love those friends that are always there, insist, like, when you're trash to get you home or insist on doing what's right when it really screws up their day or whatever. That's amazing. Those friends are few and far between, actually. I love this. It's amazing. And I play mm -hmm. it back in my mind if the roles were reversed, like if my friend was not well and wanted me to take them home. Now I know differently, but mm -hmm. if I play it back at the time, I probably would have taken them home thinking I was doing them a real favor. Yeah. Like helping them out and get, oh, I got you home. I got you set up on a couch. I got you a glass of water. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk about the symptoms of a heart attack. Because, yeah, tell us about uh, that. I, yeah, because I want to drive awareness sharing my story. I'm an open book about my story because I want people to be aware of the symptoms as they manifest themselves in May. But the weakness that I experienced, the nausea that I experienced, obviously the chest pains, as we've all heard and read about, and then the tingling in the fingers. Mm -hmm. the numbness in the fingers all are very clear symptoms of a heart attack for mm -hmm. in men in women the, the symptoms may be a bit different but yeah i like talking about them so we can hopefully save others when we observe those symptoms symptoms if you don't yeah. feel like yourself do something <laughs> do something right. i did not feel like myself and I was a relatively young age. I was 46 years right, old. Right, that is young. And athletic and healthy and doing yoga and mountain bike riding and you name it. And yet here I had this plaque rupture that caused the blockage in my Widowmaker artery. Mm -hmm. And so once that was clear and they ended up putting a stent in that artery where the blockage had occurred, mm -hmm. I could breathe. Going back in that moment, I could breathe these beautiful pain-free breaths of air and I just was like oh happy day mm -hmm. it was I can breathe I'm I'm alive I'm here I'm okay I'm I am gonna make it out of this hospital mm -hmm. so did you have any near-death experiences like the white light or messages yeah. I hear yes. that a lot oh really what was that like yeah yeah so to be clear I didn't flatline or anything like that I didn't come out of body but as we were running down the hallway towards the operating room, and I was having those three thoughts I shared with you earlier, I also felt an extraordinary amount of, of white around me. Now, granted, I'm in a sterile hospital environment, so maybe mm -hmm. that was influenced what I was sensing. But I do specifically remember being very warm, it being very white around me, and there was a shape in front of me. It was a female shape, but I can't describe it more than that. That's what I experienced and what I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Probably so, your guardian angel. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I agree. Wholeheartedly. <laughs> I, I believe so. Mm -hmm. I absolutely believe so. Mm -hmm. Looking out for me that day. Mm -hmm. Was your heart attack the best thing to happen to you? And if so, why? Well... I think it is. I was asked that once a few years ago, and I'd never heard that question before. And it took me by surprise. And I thought, what do you mean? How could that possibly be the best thing that happened? But in many ways, it has been for two major reasons. One reason is I came out of it with what I like to call my survivor superpowers. Coming out of something like that, what I gained as a survivor is more intention in what I do, mm -hmm. a greater skill and the capability to be present in the moment and when people are speaking to me or with me. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I catch myself actually leaning into them as they're talking 
it's fascinating. And just an overall greater appreciation of what we have in life and, mm-hmm. and the precious moments that we do get to have. I thought that I was living that way, being a husband and a father, wanting to be around my family and really be there for them, for my friends, for my extended family and so forth. But I realized coming out of the heart attack that I hadn't gone as far as I could possibly go. There was more presence to be had. There was more gratitude and appreciation to be experienced that occurred as a result of the heart attack. Mm-hmm. So it's, that was huge. And it's a gift that keeps on giving. We're coming on mm-hmm. almost six years later. And I still have to, have to remember my superpowers. They're present. They're there. Um, I like to, to exercise them to make sure that those capabilities are still firing at the maximum capability that I know how to make them fire. And so that's part one, was just getting these survivor superpowers. And part two was the door which I guess maybe there's a chance where we segue into maybe the next chapter here and in going back to the hospital so I can breathe after the surgery, I'm still in the operating room. They put me back on the gurney. They basically swaddle me with warm blankets and they roll me into the ICU in the cardiac recovery wing. They attach me to various monitors, make sure that I am stable and everything's functioning. And the last nurse walked out of the room and swung the curtain. There wasn't a door, it was just a curtain behind him and left me alone to my thoughts. And the first thing that happened to me, and it's impossible to fact check, but it absolutely happened, is I heard a voice in my right ear. And that voice said, find your birth parents. Being adopted, Mm -hmm. this was the first time I had heard those words and I looked to my right. I looked over my right shoulder because I thought someone had, it was so clear and in my right ear. And I don't know how you fact check it, but I <laughs> go to my grave that this is what happened. I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> and in that moment, as I'm laying there in the gurney post heart attack surgery, I'm thinking I've lived 46 years and maybe I almost checked out of here. If I checked out of here, maybe they wanted to know how I, turned out maybe i have siblings and mm. they know i exist and they're waiting for me to show up in their lives so you were never curious about it before i was curious but not curious enough to do anything about it mm. and it wasn't a driving force but mm-hmm. and but in the hospital it became my mission mm-hmm. and especially i wanted to find out if heart disease runs in the family not only for me but also for my children and their children. Mm-hmm. If this is congenital, we need to make sure that we're on top of things. And so I needed to get answers. I've ridden this trail a ton of times. I'm pretty conscious about what I eat. Why did I have this near-death experience, so to speak? Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I knew I was going to go track down and find my biological family. Mm-hmm. And that was the second big thing of the heart attack that completely changed my life. So how did you track your family? Well, you know, to be honest, I went home and the first four to six weeks out of the hospital, I completely went full hermit mode and full survivor, get back on your feet mode. So the heart attack was October 8th. It wasn't until mid-November that I went out to a fundraiser for our school. It was a costume party and I thought, okay, I'll go to this. I had a fair amount of trepidation about now I'm going to really put myself out in the community and 
what's going to happen and what questions are going to come my way and how are people going to respond to me being back up on my feet and out and about and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I met a couple at the party and they came up and said, we heard what happened. And the wife of the couple leaned into me and she goes, well, is this genetic? And I replied, I don't know. I'm adopted. Mm-hmm. And then she said, well, have you ever wanted to go find your biological family? And I replied, well, not until now, but now I really want to go find them. And she said, where were you born? And I said, well, just down the road at Marin General Hospital. And she said, okay, what was your birthday? And I'm starting to wonder why she's asking me all these questions. Mm -hmm. And she asked me one more final question. She said, when was your birthday? I'm like, oh, it was October 10th, 1969. And I'm getting a bit uncomfortable with this line of questioning. And mercifully, someone came in and broke up our conversation and we all went our separate ways. And later that night, the same woman, her name is Christina, who is now a, a very good friend of mine, but Christina had her iPhone and showed me a list of names. And it was one in the morning. I was tired. And I'm just like, Christina, I don't know what you're showing me. I'm going to bed. Could you mind emailing this to me? So the next morning, I woke up to an email from her, which was that table. And she explained to me in the email that this table was all the births of, on October 10th, 1969, in Marin County, California. And there were five babies born on that day. Four out of the five had traditional names like John Doe, Jane Smith, whatever, Adrian Mm -hmm. Jones. Well, my my name wasn't on there, but just traditional naming conventions. And then there was a listing for a child born to unwed parents where it listed the last names of the birth mother and the birth father. That's all there was. Mm-hmm. And, and Christina wrote in this email and said, this could be, this is a birth of unwed parents. Potentially, this is you. Potentially, these are the last names of your biological parents. We got to do some homework, but maybe this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know more? She asked me in the email. I replied right away. Heck yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> what, do, what do we know? And she's um, like a detective. You're just sitting back. <laughs> Oh, well, more than that. So she says, do you want to know more? And I replied back, absolutely. When can we meet? So we met a couple of days later. And at this point, I'm walking the trails out where we live. And I brought the dog and, and we start walking. And she proceeds to tell me, to your point, Mary Kay, she is a genetic genealogist. She's a DNA sleuth. Oh, and I love it. She helps adoptees find their biological families. That's her job. She's, oh, that's my her goodness. Wow. And, Yeah. And she said, would you like my help? And I said, I would love your help. I don't even know where to begin. I thought when I was ready, I would Google how to find your biological parents and figure out what I could find out online. But I would love your help. She She fell into your lap for a reason. I mean, that's uh, amazing. Big time. And she said, well, what do you know about your, tell me what you know about your biological parents. And at this point, I'd never seen my adoption papers. I only knew what my parents who had raised me had had told me. And they'd shared with me that my biological mother was of Norwegian descent, had brothers and was Catholic. And Christina said, okay, great. That's a ton of information. And then she said, what do you know about your biological father? I said, I don't know. I think he was a title officer. Well, so going back to that table in the email she sent me, the mother's last name was Kyle, K-Y-L-E, and the father's last name was Kelly. And so we continued our walk and started talking about other projects she had worked on, got back to the car. 
She had an ancestry DNA kit waiting for me. I guess as genetic <laughs> genealogists are want to do, they drive around with kits, commercial <laughs> DNA kits. <laughs> and so I spit in the vial. I gave her my DNA sample, and we we went our separate ways. And I drove home, going, "What on earth have I just done? Like, I don't know her. She asked me a bunch of questions at this party. She's a genetic genealogist. She's to your point. She like fell in my lap. But I reasoned with myself. I said, "You know what?" Life is working in mysterious ways. I'm just going to lean into it mm-hmm. and just see where this takes me. So that's what I decided to do by the time I got home. And two days later, I get a text from Christina. She goes, where are you? I want to show you something. So I said, I'll swing by your house in 20 minutes. I get to her house. She sits me down and says, okay, I've done some research. And I go, okay. I used what your, your biological father's last name, what we believe to be your biological father's last name, Kelly, is a very common last name, but your biological mother's last name, Kyle, is an unusual last name. And so I looked through all the San Francisco Bay Area counties, Marin County, Alameda County, San Francisco County, looking for women with the last name Kyle of childbearing age. She continued and said, I found two women that were of childbearing age, but one gave birth in September of the year you were born. So that eliminates her. That leaves one woman. Um, Okay. And she goes, can you guess where she lived at the time? And I said, I have no idea. And she goes, well, just guess. I said, I have no idea. And she said, well, I'll tell you. I'll give you you your first clue. She lived in Marin County, which is the county in which I live now. And I said, oh, okay. And can you guess what town she lived in back in 1969? I have no idea. There are lots of towns in Marin County. And she said, San Anselmo which, oh, by the way, is the town that I live with at the time. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, what the Don't tell me she's your next door neighbor. (laughs) Well, this is what I'm starting to think. I'm starting to get goosebumps and visceral things are happening with me and my (laughs) stomach's starting to flip and tears are starting to well in my eyes a little bit. Christina continues. She said, this woman's name was Sharon Kyle. And she lived in San Anselmo in 1969. I did some research in Ancestry and all these various places. And I found out that her grandparents on one side of her family came over from Norway. And she has two brothers. And so, and we also know that in 1969, she was 24 years old. Mm -hmm. And she said, so what I did is I rolled her age down from when she was 24 years old to when she would have been about 18 to see if she went to any of the local high schools. And so she was looking at yearbooks at our three local public high schools in Southern Marin County where I live, and she couldn't find any instance of Sharon Kyle. And then she said, but I remembered on our walk, you told me she was Catholic. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, don't you dare say this. Don't you go where I think you're about to go. (laughs) She said, I did some more research and I looked through yearbooks at Marin Catholic, which is the only Catholic high school in the area. And I'm starting to freak out, Mary Kay, literally like goosebumps racing up and down my spine, my legs, my arms, my neck. I'm afraid where it's going to go. And she said, I found that the Sharon Kyle graduated from Marin Catholic in 1962 and I lost it because my daughter was two months into her freshman year at this very same Catholic high school and had been unwittingly walking under this woman's senior year 
portrait on the walls of the administrative building for the last two months. No way. Walking under the photograph. That's wild. Her paternal grandmother, (laughs) biological grandmother. So did you go reach out and meet her? Yes. So, yeah. So eventually we did meet. Ancestry DNA did come in in December and it routed me into her family and it so turns out that we also found my biological father. His name is Ron Kelly, and we have DNA into his family. Mm-hmm. I reached out to them. I sent them the letters in January of 2017. I sent them each three-page letters. Like, I don't know what, there's no rule book here for like, how do you reconnect with your biological family? Mm-hmm. I do you call them? Do you show up on their doorstep? Do you send them a message a note through a social media app like Facebook or something like that? Like, what do you do? Yeah. And what I concluded is we knew where they lived. Um, they both lived within an hour drive of, of where I live now is I would send them letters. Mm-hmm. I sent them three page letters and had a picture of me and the, Liz and the kids. And uh, here's my contact information. But basically I said, I'm a heart attack survivor. As an adoptee, it's prompted me to find my biological family I believe that you are my birth mother or my birth father, and I'm just looking for answers. I have a big heart. I'd love to share it with you in some way if you're open to it. And once those letters were sent, about five days after they were delivered, I got an email mm-hmm. from Sharon. And the subject line was, thank you. Aww. And in the email, it said, thank you so much. I never thought this day would ever happen. It's been 47 years. I never changed my last name in the hopes that you would come find me. You have a sister who has a family and three young children. She explained all that, which I knew because I'd done a bunch of sleuthing online. And I found out that Sharon was married and had a daughter. or I had a half-sister. And biological dad, Ron, was married and had two daughters or two half-sisters. I was so excited to know I have sisters. Aww. I was super compelled to meet them. If nothing else, if things didn't go right with the biological parents, I was determined to meet my sisters. Right. Yeah, I was so excited to meet them. And so that was her response back to me was that email. Thank you. We talked the next day on the phone for Mm -hmm. three hours. Wow. Yeah. And to hear her voice for the first time and to hear the story about how I came to be and her relationship with Ron and Mm-hmm. how all that happened was just so 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 powerful and as we agreed we'd meet in a, a couple days later at a hotel lobby in berkeley and as we're wrapping up our phone conversation she said is it okay if i hug you when i see you and i replied back to her i said absolutely that's mm-hmm. the first order of businesses we we're going to have a long overdue long-awaited hug yeah and then, and then I tried to end this very serious and emotional phone conversation on a lighter note. And I said, uh, I look forward to seeing you again. And she replied back, I've never seen you. I'm what? Like, what, do you what do you mean? And she told me that in those days, women were sedated. That's right. Adoption scenarios. And they would just I take the baby. I don't know how that works, but she was sedated. And when Aww. she came to, my biological grandmother was by her side and told Sharon that she got to hold me and that I had the face of an angel. Oh, it's what her mom said to her. So that's all that Sharon held on to for 47 years was that she had had a son and that there was this angelic face involved. 
I don't know if I have much electricity. (laughs) I'm sure you do. (laughs) (laughs) No, but but so did your biological dad respond? He was slow to respond. So it's an amazingly good question because I heard back from Sharon right away. And what I found out about their relationship is that they, in fact, actually were engaged. And along I came and she had this realization that she was not to marry him, that it wasn't going to be the right fit and that he wouldn't be the right husband for me in her mind. And so she wanted to put me up for adoption into a family with two loving parents and Mm -hmm. some other criteria. And so when she told me that, I'm like, oh, man, this guy, he had his heart ripped out right. and had an engagement that had been ended and probably a really hard time for him. And so I had a lot of empathy for him. Like, mm-hmm. I'm probably not going to hear back from him. Right. And I didn't. And I was like, huh, I don't know how to play this. Do I send him another letter? I mean, I knew his phone number. I knew where he, obviously, he sent him letters. I knew where he lived. I'd go to his house and knock on his door. Like, I don't want to upend his life if he doesn't want to Just ride your bike me. by his house. <laughs> go and get on my bike and go check out it. Yeah, exactly. Go check out his house. And what I did do, however, is his oldest daughter is an interior designer. Mm-hmm. She has her own company, has her own website. And on her website is clearly displayed her email address. Mm-hmm. So I said, huh. I took her email address, sent her an email, and basically said, I'm an adoptee looking for my biological family. I sent your father a letter. It's important for me that you know this. And that I'm hopeful that you will be open to meeting with me. And I didn't explicitly say that I'm your brother or anything like that. I, mm-hmm. I wanted her to put it together. And three days later, I met the whole family. Oh, that's so great. Was it a positive experience? Totally. Because it it's been, not always. So you're always taking that ne- risk, you know? It's a huge risk. I am one of the very, very lucky ones. Mm-hmm. You know, now fast forward several years. So we're what six years into reunion now, and there's three levels. There's acknowledgement, there's acceptance, and there's embrace. Mm-hmm. Like as as you have a DNA reunion, mm-hmm. um, and they not only acknowledge me, they not only accepted me, they've embraced my arrival in their lives, mm-hmm. and so it's been extremely beautiful for me and i'm clearly one of the lucky ones you are exactly right there are definitely scenarios that don't work out favorably for a variety of reasons and that's tragic and it rips my heart out when i hear that because i know what it takes to be an adoptee to reach out to your biological family not knowing what the heck is going to happen it is a massive massive leap of faith Mm -hmm. and I'm lucky. We see each other all the time. Like I said, both sides of the family are within an hour drive of where I live. We see each other all the time. We text and talk on the phone a bunch. We have our new family traditions around the holidays and stuff like that. And it's been remarkable. And And you just expanded all the love within your family. All all the love. And my mom who raised me. I was wondering how she reacted. Yeah. So my parents were rather stoic about it all. When we were growing up, I have a younger sister who's also adopted. And when we were growing up, occasionally we would talk about our our respective biological families. My parents would indicate their support for our eventual potential search, but they had warned us, you never know what you're going to find. But now that I was doing the search, I was in reunion, they were rather stoic and my mom was quite tender about it all. Yeah. And I explained to her, and, and you hit the nail on the head, is I was like, 
mom, look, I mean, there's so much more love in my life, in your son's life. I have more love and people looking out for me. And so do your my kids, your grandkids have more love in their lives and more people looking out for them. Like, isn't, mm-hmm. wouldn't that be every parent's dream for their children? And so I think that was helpful for her to hear. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was tough because my parents live on the East Coast and I'm out here 3,000 miles away on the West Coast. Oh, so, so that's even more unusual. Yeah. You were raised mm-hmm. on the East Coast. Actually, I was raised in Colorado, of all places. Oh. But then my senior year in high school, my parents moved from Denver to outside Boston. And so, yeah, they've been there ever since. Like, what makes this story so crazy? And all the way full circle from was a heart attack, one of the best things that happened for you is... I have you know, born in Marin, grew up in Colorado, Massachusetts, have lived in L.A., ended up in Marin County in the exact town in which you could say I lived in utero in, in Sharon's belly. Yeah, that's I a wild story. A, like, like a full-grown homing pigeon, human <laughs> homing pigeon. <laughs> yeah. So is this the reason why you started the Profound Awesomeness podcast? What inspired yeah. that? Yeah. So what inspired that is, so I had my survivor superpowers and was feeling so good about life and having a second chance and being present and grateful. And then I went through this incredible journey to go find my biological family and had the reunion that I had had. And that filled up my soul. I had holes in my heart and my soul that were filled by this. I didn't even know I had. And this being the reunion and being Mm -hmm. embraced by my biological family. Mm -hmm. I got so much peace by being in reunion with them. Like, things started to feel profoundly awesome to me. And so I came up with this concept, this term profound awesomeness. And I eventually started a podcast about profound awesomeness. And it's about people who've been through really pivotal points in their lives, Mm -hmm. whether it's a calamity or a health scare or something else, like a really radical pivotal point and how they go through that journey and how they come out the other side and what's life like for them that they've been through this experience Mm -hmm. and are they finding their version of profound awesomeness as a result yeah yeah so i started that a couple years ago and really enjoyed telling and sharing those stories it's intended to be a good news positive story like in the spirit of positive podcasts right well i love how you turned a negative or a traumatic health experience scare into such a positive and was able to be more mindful in life and I'm sure you've set an incredible example for your kids, too. It's a great story. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I hope I, I've set a good example for the kids. They had a front row seat so that mm-hmm. they felt like they were part of this journey and, and could embrace it as well. Mm-hmm. And it's been such a great thing. So is the heart attack. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, it's been a really good thing for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we don't want another one, but it worked out. <laughs> I do not want to go through that again. I'm no. grateful to be here. I'm thrilled I have the second chance, and, and it is a gift and a half to have this mm-hmm. our age where you get this whole new family you get to meet and get to know and make mm-hmm. up for lost time and figure out what you have in common and what you don't. It's magical. Mm-hmm. And it gives me so much hope and inspiration every day. It's just been a gift to me. Yeah. A real gift. Well, if our listeners want to get in touch with you or be a guest on your podcast, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah. So I would just please go to the Profound Awesomeness podcast, wherever you download your podcasts. 
You can also go to profoundawesomeness.com and there's a way you can reach me through that website. You can send me an email through the form on that site and I would be grateful to hear from you. If you want to be on the show or you have a story to tell or a friend's story to tell or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Well, I really appreciate you sharing the story of life, love, and connection and positivity. So thanks for sharing and I wish your whole family well. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Kay. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be on your show and to share my story with you. It's it's been a lot of fun, and I really am grateful for the opportunity. Sure. You're welcome. Please find a comfortable seated position or a reclining position. And with every exhale, I want you to release any disease from your body, any ailments or tension Let it leave the body. You can come up with any mantra that you want to help heal your mind and your physical body. Reciting these mantras at least five times out loud or quietly to yourself while focusing on your breath helps you release disease, discomfort, helps you manifest your dreams. It helps you evolve with feelings of gratitude and power. So take a deep inhale. One, two, three, four, five. And then exhale deeply. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Visualize any discomfort leaving the body. And feel empowered, taking your health into your own hands. And consciously repeat, I am strong and healthy. When we say we're ill or we have a problem or we have this issue, then We always have problems. So imagine you don't have any problems. You are healing. Your body is healthy. Your mind is strong. Your heart is full. And you're mindfully experiencing every single day. Let your jaw... Relax open so you part your lips. The TMJ joints feel relaxed and heavy. And you're still breathing in with your jaws relaxed. Press the tongue right into the teeth. Continue breathing, inhaling, and exhaling. Feeling this deep relaxation overcoming your entire face. And then your breath just feels effortless. As you inhale, mouth parted, exhale, relax, TMJ. Jaw is relaxed. Unclench your teeth. 
soften. To feel balance in your life. Anytime you have a nagging or worrying thought, think the opposite. Instead of focusing on what you don't have, let's focus on what you do have. A caring family, a roof over your head, nature surrounding your home, green grass, a job, a job you love, friends you love, friends who make you laugh. Over time, focusing on everything you have will make you feel better within, which will then give you the confidence you need to live the life you truly desire. When you feel stronger in your body and mind, your heart feels connected to everyone you meet. And that's really the purpose in life, is connection. Being conscious of your words, so that your words are always revealing love and compassion. And that's not always easy to do. People drive us crazy, or we hear all the craziness in, in the world. So take a step back and respond with calm, confidence, compassion, love. Inhale and fill your entire body up with love. And then exhale, releasing any worry or negative thoughts. Inhale, filling your heart with love. And then let the heart expand outward with all that love spreading out all around you. And send that love to someone you love. Now breathe in, filling your heart with love. Exhale and send that love to a mentor, someone who helped you that really didn't gain anything in return. They just cared. Now inhale again, filling your body with love. And as you exhale, just visualize the heart chakra opening and shining all that love out into the universe. Send that love to someone you don't like at all. They're annoying. You can't stand them. They're driving you crazy. Send the love to them. Sometimes when you do this exercise, it's always amazing. You might get a text from all those people you sent the love to. Be sure to subscribe to Mary Kay's Positivity Podcast, and I hope you'll join us again soon. Namaste.